Okay, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the completed canon of Scripture. That is where we find our peace and our rest. It is in the Logos, the Word. As we know, the Word became flesh. So that Word is our Lord and Savior as well. We find our rest, our peace, and that peace that He has promised us, His own peace. Thank you, Father, for ordaining a plan that includes all of these things by grace motivated by your love. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross 2,000 years ago to make even this evening a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, we obviously are midstream, part 56 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, uh, fantastic principles. Uh, and if you've missed any of these uh, lessons, uh, please um, use the website. Speaking of the website, take advantage of it. Some of these lessons, as I've uh, stated in the past, require do-overs. And that's why we go through all that work uh, of maintaining the website so that you have the ability to go back and uh, check these things out. Uh, with that said, on Tuesday we began with some synthesizing, which really means just bringing together a bunch of the things that the Spirit's put before us as of late. And this was one of our conclusions. Now, this is how Tuesday evening started, at least. Um, what does it mean to live the gospel reality? In other words, to live it the way Paul lived it, to live in light of it, to live as or for uh, as it being a, a point of encouragement for all of us. What does it mean to live the gospel reality? And how does this compare to, say, living the spiritual life? Are they different things? Are these different or one and the same concept? And so we looked at Romans 15, 13 to 19 to help us out with these questions. Let's review that passage quickly. Go to Romans 15, 13. Again, the questions on the table are, what does it mean to live the gospel reality? I've used that phrase many, many times. Even Evangelist Grande uses it when I'm not here. How does it compare to, say, living the spiritual life or any other sort of catchphrase that we might use to describe uh, this life that we're living? Romans 15, 13. And this is obviously in accordance with what the Spirit's been doing for a long time now. He's saying, elevate your system of thinking. Go to the big picture. Think about the big picture. Should we be in the weeds and get sort of uh, convoluted and lose sight, lose track of the things that matter most, or should we simply listen to these types of things uh, and add them to the big picture? So Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, 
So now, so far in verses 13 through 14, we've had mention of the gospel. Uh, you have with all joy and peace and believing. That's a reference, obviously, to the gospel reality. And also that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a reference to the spiritual life. So we have the two key questions on the board addressed in verses 13 and then in 14. But then Paul also says in verse 15, But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace, and the Spirit had us pause on that for a moment, because of the grace up here in the board, Paul understood completely that his strength was never from himself. Rather, it was by the grace of God. Any boldness that he exhibited, Allah, Romans 15, 15, obviously not the, the only spot in the New Testament where his boldness was evidenced, but any boldness that he exhibited, Allah, Romans 15, 15, was founded on this fact that he understood that his strength was never from himself, Rather, it was by the grace of God. And so that's where his boldness, that's where that Greek word that's behind the phrase very boldly um, was written, or why it was written, why it's even able to be written by Paul himself. It's because he understood that it was by grace. Verse 16, we're going to add to that before the night's over. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And again, that's a reference to the spiritual life. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, uh, and that's a reference to the gospel again, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And so you see a real issue of humility here. So what we need to do then is something that the Spirit's taught us many, many times, is understand that Paul's confidence is a function of his humility, as should ours be. Our confidence is a function of our humility. Otherwise, it's false confidence false humility. If our confidence is based on something from the flesh, not by the grace of God, then we have what we might call a false humility. So two things about humility up here on the board. Humility is simultaneously aggressive in its tact and confident in what it discovers or reaffirms. Two things about humility. Humility is simultaneously aggressive in its tact, which means that the Bible does encourage us to go boldly to the throne of grace. That's in the book of Hebrews. Here we see Paul saying, I'm very bold. Why? Because of the grace. So humility is simultaneously aggressive in its tact and confident in what it discovers or reaffirms. In other words, it's going to discover and rediscover and have a reaffirmation of all the promises of God each time we take this tact. So to personify it, it says, My master is hands down the greatest of all. Therefore, as long as I abide in him, keep his commandments, love him, all will be well. Verse 18, I'm going quickly because this is review. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. 
resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as uh, Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So you see really a, a, quite a bit of humility there. It's a wonderful example for us. And he says, I'm not going to boast in anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So we need to always have transparency with God. Not that he needs it, rather we do. And so we talked about this as well, a conversation we might have with God that may come off to an uneducated individual that may come off as overly bold, but it's not overly bold at all. It's just pure transparency with God. That's what he wants with us. So we have to make that distinction between false humility, which is, aw, shucks, I guess I'm not going to ask God that, versus aggressive humility, which is I'm going to go, as Paul said, boldly to the throne of grace, based on who and what I have been made in Christ Jesus. So we have to think of this kind of a conversation. I just sort of fabricated a conversation, but this is the kind of conversation, the kind of approach that we need to have. If we're going to talk about being experientially or progressively sanctified, which means living the spiritual life, uh, living the gospel reality, however, whatever catchphrase you'd like to use, if we're going to talk about this with any coherency, then we have to talk about it within the realm of humility. Humility is aggressive. So this is the kind of conversation we need to have with our Father in Heaven, our Dad, our Papa, if you would. You ordained, hi Dad, you ordained this life, this body, this mind, this heart, before I was even born. That's a fair statement. You had no say whatsoever in how you were going to be born. You had no say. So this was part of the sovereign will of God to create you the way He created you, as an individual. We're going to close with individuality this evening. So you have to start off this conversation with complete transparency. Hey, Dad, you ordained this life, this body, this mind, this heart before I was even born. You want me to glorify you, right? Then this is your problem to solve. And that's a big thing for a lot of people. A lot of people say, no, it's my problem. Dad, go spend some time with somebody else. I've got it from here. That's literally the worst thing you could possibly do. It's the antithesis of boldly going to the throne of grace. It's the exact opposite of what God wants from you. He wants your aggression. He wants you to go boldly to the throne of grace. Seek it out. Seek me first and I'll add all these things to you. Matthew 6.33, right? So this is your problem to solve. I'm here. I'm available. P.S. Thank you for your patience. Insert your name. He might respond this way. Hi, my child. For years I watched as you assumed responsibility over your sanctification. That was arrogant of you. Now that I've got your humility, I can solve my problem without you getting in the way. P.S. Regarding my patience, you're welcome. The important thing is that you're here now. So don't be all condemned. Don't be guilt-ridden because yesterday or your life before all of this, was you trying to take control of the wheel. That's behind you. You can't change it. But you are here now. And that's the conversation he wants you to have with him. Totally transparent. Let's call it bold. In other words, hey, you really did create me this way. 
Uh, I obviously can't solve this problem, these problems, plural. So this is your problem, isn't it? And he goes, yes, finally, I've got your attention. It's my problem now. Get out of the way. This is what a transaction involving humility looks like. There's an openness, an honesty, even an undeniable boldness to it. And these are all very good things. You know, so says the Bible, not Pastor Ed. So says the Bible. And if right now your soul is a little stirred and you're a little bit confused about all this, then don't look at the man, look at the Bible. That's why we go to Scripture. So this transaction, this example of a transaction is what humility really looks like. True humility, not the fake, aw shucks thing. There's an openness and honesty and even an undeniable boldness to it. Those are all very good things. So says the Bible. Remember James 4.6 says, God gives an even greater grace to the humble. Which really means that if you're looking for deliverance from what can only be called your life. Anybody in, here, anybody in here have a perfect day today? No challenges whatsoever? Not one iota of pain or undeserved suffering? I think not. So we're all seeking some form of deliverance, some sort of setting aside, some sort of sanctification, even if it's just between our two ears. Anything to protect us, to garrison our hearts, that thing that He promises us. He promises a peace beyond all human comprehension, that will protect, will garrison our hearts. Who doesn't want that? Because life's going to go on. Life's going to be a pain in the neck. And so we're all looking for some deliverance from what can only be called our lives with all its baggage. Then the secret to success is that you must be humble. That's how you add all this up. You want deliverance from the baggage called your life. The secret is humility. Jesus himself said, For to everyone who has, more shall be given. Matthew 25, 29. To everyone who has, more shall be given. James 4, 6 says, He gives a greater grace to the humble. So to get more, you must be more humble. So this is a statement about grace, remember, following the parable of the talents, which is akin to the parable of the miners in Luke 19. The principle is that if you're bold enough to go to the throne of grace, then he will grant you even more boldness to go even more boldly to him next time. And that's not an issue of arrogance, that's an issue of humility. I mean, who went more boldly to the throne of grace than Jesus Christ himself? And are we to call him arrogant or humble? Paul's another great example. Imperfect, whereas Jesus was perfect. But nonetheless, the humility is of the same brand, let's say. So you see, there's such a thing as misguided grace orientation even. To a person functioning in creature credit, grace makes zero sense because they think in terms of silver bullets or chits or finite currency. This is in direct violation of Matthew 25, 29 and Luke 19, 26. Go to Luke 19, 26. 
just as a cross-reference, we just looked at Matthew 25:29, which said, For to him who has, more shall be given. Well, how could that add up to the point on the board then? Unless you might have grace misappropriated or misunderstood in your own soul. So to a person functioning, Luke 19:26, to a person functioning in creature credit, grace makes zero sense because they think in terms of silver bullets or chits or finite currency. As if we've asked way too much of God already today. You know, like when you, you were a kid and you asked your parents, you're like, I wonder if I could squeeze one more thing out of them. Like, you know, pinch them a little bit more in terms of, you know, pushing them to the limit before they smack us in the, you know, upside the head. God's not like that. He doesn't run out of the things that we run out of. He doesn't have a currency that says, well, that's it. My grace is done for today. Luke 19, 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who doesn't have or does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. You see, the arrogant person loses things. The humble person gains all the more. Up here on the board, we're speaking of James 4, 6 a couple of times already. In the Amplified, it reads this way. But he gives us more and more grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to defy sin and live an obedient life that reflects both our faith and our gratitude for our salvation. Jeez, that's almost everything I've been teaching, isn't it, over the last couple of months? Through the power of the Holy Spirit to defy sin and live an obedient life that reflects both our faith and our gratitude for our salvation. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and haughty, but continually gives the gift of grace to the humble who turn away from self-righteousness. We spent a little time on, uh, at the start of Tuesday's class synthesizing all that we've been given as of late. And it is a lot, but it's doable because he says it is. And one of the conclusions was a practical issue up here on the board. We'll call it practical sanctification. You know, it's one thing to learn about the theology behind sanctification, you know, positional experiential, ultimate sanctification. It's one thing to learn about the theology of the doctrines and to see all the scripture. It's another thing to actually apply these principles to life. So practical sanctification. Sanctification, though a reasonably technical term, is really about learning how to live a life of confidence in Christ, a life of peace with the Spirit's encouragement and a sense of reality in the gospel truth. In other words, remember where you came from. That's living the gospel reality. In brief, in other words, living in gratitude. In brief, sanctified means focusing on Jesus Christ to the point that everything else fades to the background. It's a wonderful way to think about it, isn't it? Because there's two ways. If something's bothersome to you, you can focus on it in attempt by power to push it away. Or you can turn to something good, and when you turn to something good, the effort to push it away is no longer necessary because it's not even between the crosshairs. There's two different ways, in other words, to address the garbage in this life. You can try to defeat it with your own power, or you can do what the Bible says, turn to Christ, focus on Him, 
And in doing so, that just fades away. And you have a sense of peace by just focusing on Him. That's why on our website, it's the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So that's what we might call practical sanctification. You don't have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand what I just said, do you? You just have to be real. You have to be humble. You have to say, that's how it's done? Yes, that's how it's done. So practical sanctification. Sanctification, though a reasonably technical term, is really about learning how to live a life of confidence in Christ, a life of peace, with the Spirit's encouragement, of course, and a sense of reality in the gospel truth. In brief, sanctified means focusing on Jesus Christ to the point that everything else fades to the background. You see, sanctification by definition isn't a terribly difficult concept to digest. It's just that our lives vary so significantly as individuals that sanctification principles are applied in a variety of ways. Let me say that again. It's not that sanctification is that difficult. I mean, there are technicalities to it. There's an awful lot of scripture that speaks to it. So there's some legwork that we have to do, and based on context variations in the Bible, we have to learn about those things. But the concept itself is not that difficult. It's literally being set apart for God's will. But it becomes difficult when we apply these principles to our own lives, to our individual lives. So the difficulty is really about the individuality of our own existences. It's not the concepts. And then there's this sort of, you know, impurity between the new self and the old self. Things aren't always clear. So our lives vary so significantly as individuals that sanctification principles are applied in a variety of ways. Sort of like that analogy I gave you last week with the two old ladies looking out their windows at the same rose bush. Same plant, different perspectives. One saw all flowers, one saw a bare shrub. But it was the same bush, different perspectives. Same goes with the Word of God, same scripture, different perspectives. We're all looking out a different window, in other words. We're all looking out into scripture from our own sort of individual experiences. Individual experiences, get it? Experiential sanctification. So experiential sanctification then has a bit of individuality to it, which is perfectly fine. The big mistake many people make is, in arrogance, superimposing their own experiences on the lives of others and suggesting stupid things like, quote, if after you think you're sanctified, your life isn't just like mine, you aren't sanctified. That's stupidity. But that's what arrogant people do. They, they assume, they presume that to be sanctified in Christ means we're all going to become a bunch of little drones. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. God is glorified when we 
remain in the condition in which we're called, and He sanctifies us with what He created in the first place. He created a life for us. And He says, stay where you're at. I'll do my good work in you. I promise, Philippians 1.6. You don't have to turn into a bunch of little drones. We're not trying to be like everyone else. I created you different. If I wanted a bunch of drones, guess what? I would have created a bunch of drones. But I didn't. I, each, I give to each of you a measure of faith. So says Scripture. Why would he do that? Why would he give some more faith in this area and some less over in there? Because you're an individual. That's why. And that's his sovereign right. So the big mistake that many arrogant people make is they superimpose their own experiences onto others, and they assume that since they're being sanctified, if someone else isn't being sanctified the same way, that somehow they're not being sanctified. And they lose this whole sense of individuality. That's what sophomores do, so here's a caution statement from the Spirit. Sophomores, otherwise known as wise morons, are famous for making personal experiences with sanctification absolute doctrine. The more assertive then oppose their doctrines upon others, stifling the spiritual growth of others. But guess what? God made his children individually. Everyone in here has something to add to the body of Christ. From eternity past, God ordained it. Everyone in here is special. I've taught that in the past. Everyone, nobody here is loved more by God than someone else. That's all the ridiculousness that comes with the flesh. So, caution. Sophomores are famous for making personal experiences with sanctification, absolute doctrine. The more assertive, then, oppose their doctrines upon others, stifling the spiritual growth of others. God made his children individually, though. So, when we read of Paul's exuberance regarding being set apart for the sake of the gospel... We need to first drop any notion of assuming we need to become like our neighbors. That's not sanctification. You don't look at, you know, Bill Johnson, and in all due respect to Bill, yeah, he's a mature guy in the spiritual life, assumably. That's how I discern him. But I personally don't want to be Bill. Neither does his son, obviously. And he knows him better than I do, so there you go. Right? <laughs> Who wants to be Bill? The best thing about Bill would be married to Lois. Huh, Lois? Bill's like, it was funny for a bit, buddy. Move along. (laughs) Seriously, being sanctified is not becoming like somebody else. Can you see Christ in another person? Absolutely. Can you appreciate it? Can you love what you see? Absolutely. But their experience is very different than yours. Bill grew up in Aruba. Anybody else except for Lois? No. I don't know what Aruba was like. Been there one time. Whatever. Who knows what the challenges are like growing up on an island? Who knows what it's like to be married to Lois? I don't know. We assume she's a nice gal. She seems sweet, but you never know. They come in the driveway, you're kind of driving crooked sometimes. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop picking on you. So we first need to drop the notion or any notion of assuming we need to become like our neighbors, that's a grave, often 
lifelong mistake that too many well-intentioned believers make. It's funny, I just checked volume one of the Diary of a Journeyman, which was that big book that I put out, which is really just a book of primarily past blog entries. And except for the chapter on relationships, family, and kids, which I believe had 16 um, subsections, the chapter on individuality had the most, besides that other one, had the most subsections at 14. Since the Spirit is behind my writing each of the blogs over the course of the year and a half or so that comprises that book, what might we conclude about those facts then? Well, minimally, I'd say that he's stressing both relationships and individuality at the same time. The two biggest points of emphasis in that book, 800-something pages or something like that, right? All those blogs, almost 200 blogs, relationships and individuality, those are the ones that rose to the top in terms of the most common themes. So more on practical sanctification. Being sanctified in Christ means understanding the depths of His love for you as an individual. Remember, you are wonderfully made. That's Scripture, Psalm 139, 14. Everyone in here, doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter what you smell like, doesn't matter how you talk, doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. You are wonderfully made as an individual. And you have to look in the mirror and say, God, you made me this way. Thank you. Instead of buying any lie because you don't look or act or... I hate to... Why am I saying smell? Anyway, smell like your neighbor. Sometimes that's a very good thing. Then you're not wonderfully made. That's a lie. And that's what Satan in the kingdom of darkness would have you believe. Just pick up any magazine on the shelf. Everybody's striving to be like this, I don't know, model or something. It's just ridiculous. So being sanctified in Christ means understanding the depths of His love for you as an individual. You are wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14. That is coupled with understanding that you are to relate to others from the uniqueness that is you. Altogether, we comprise the dynamic spiritual life. So in other words, there's a bunch of individuals being sanctified in Christ Jesus, and we come together and we collide with one another and we relate. Relationships, individuality. Relationships, individuality. Those are the things that percolated to the top as major themes over the past two years. Relationships, individuality. How do those things reconcile? Easy. You were wonderfully made as an individual, but you're also made to relate to other people. And whenever we relate to other people, there's a dynamic to it. There's a coming together, and there's a, what I call the dynamic spiritual life. And thanks be to God, right? Because wouldn't life be just boring if we were all the same? I think so. So as your shepherd, I'm asking you to dwell on this. It is very important for you to feel a sense of individuality, but not a loss of connection with others. Let me say it again. It's very important for you to feel a sense of individuality, 
but not a loss of connection with others. He doesn't want islands either. Please remember these things as we get back to our primary course of study. Now go to Romans 1.16. Okay, now we're getting back to more theology proper. That was all hopefully encouraging for you. It's the way that the Spirit's been beginning our lessons now for a few lessons straight, giving us some high-level things to think about, probably again so that we don't lose sight of the big picture. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's what spawned all of this work, folks, as of late. Again, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We can summarize Romans 1.17 this way. Describes the essence of life for a true believer. A person being saved daily is a person who is being sanctified daily. And that's what our experience is, in other words. You're saved daily, you're sanctified daily. That's why we have experiential salvation and experiential sanctification. You're saved and sanctified daily. A word of caution, though, when we get into the more Specifics of the theology regarding sanctification. Both sanctified and holy are context-sensitive in the Bible. It means I could, tell you, I could say to you right now, hey, you're sanctified. And I could mean a couple of things. I could mean positionally, which means that you're saved. I can't say that for sure, but I could say, I think you're sanctified. Because I think you're saved. We call that positional or judicially Those are the judicial aspects of sanctification. I could also be referencing you being set apart for God's purposes. You bearing good fruit. You having what we would call instead of imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness. Imparted meaning maybe you're showing fruit of the Spirit, like Galatians uh, 5, 22 and 23. Maybe you're showing fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you're showing self-control now when two years ago you had zero self-control. I see you in this situation now, and I say, wow, that's fantastic. God must be working wonders in that person. Whereas two years ago, they would have been flipping out. I might say, hey, you're sanctified right now. And you might agree. But those are two different contexts. And so we have to look at that, that way. The big picture is that God saves us from sin, sanctifies us to righteousness, and calls this whole process out as deliverance. So just to help out with the two frameworks we've been working on, again, we have our positional experiential ultimate phase or tense in view. In terms of salvation, he saves us from the penalty of sin, positionally, the power experientially, and the very presence of sin ultimately in heaven. But he delivers us from the domain of sin to the domain of righteousness. So in one sense, we're putting sin behind us. He saves us from sin, but he also sanctifies us to righteousness. It's from to. 
So when we think about the three phases of sanctification, positionally, imputed righteousness, experiential, uh, imparted righteousness, and then ultimate would be a complete righteousness. Okay, we might even say a perfected righteousness. Okay, and that is sort of the, the main flow, if you would. So we might summarize it this way. God's grace through faith delivers us from sin to righteousness, regardless of whether it's positional, experiential, or ultimate. And again, we're being theological right now, so don't lose sight of that big picture that he gave us in the first half an hour of class. The overall process then, again, might be rightly called deliverance. Now, here's our specific working framework on the topic of sanctification, specifically right-hand side of the previous table. Sanctification perspective, remember, from God's perspective, he sees it all at once. He's not bound by the construct of time in any way, shape, or form. So from his perspective, it's we're sanctified, set apart for him. From man's perspective, though, under the construct of time, we have three phases that we can rightly call out. Positionally, imputed righteousness or judicial aspects of sanctification in view. Experientially, that's you now, assuming you're saved. Imparted righteousness, that's bearing good fruit. That's something that's done daily. And then ultimately, where the righteousness is complete, no, old, no more old sin nature, resurrection body, that's our eternal state or eternal sanctification. So those are the three phases that we've been sort of tackling, uh, and we've only gotten really to the first one. And we're still in the first one, even after tonight. So we've completed our scriptural survey of our baseline definition And this is what it looked like. Positional sanctification, what we would call the imputed phase. God wills to sanctify, make holy, the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, a.k.a. positional salvation, are delivered to imputed or judicial righteousness through justification. Romans 4, 23-25. We saw uh, that passage. A believer's position... In Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living, a.k.a. experiential sanctification. Acts 20, 32, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 6, 11, Hebrews 10, 10, Jude 1, 1. To water that down a little bit and use and borrow from Romans 1, 17, positional sanctification from faith is the inspiration for experiential sanctification to faith. That's what it means to live the gospel reality. You never lose sight of where you came from. You never lose sight of the cross. That's your from faith. You've got ultimate gratitude. If we, were, if we had, quote, unquote, nothing to be grateful for ever again in this life, which would be heinous to say, but let's just suppose, shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough of an anchor? To live with gratitude from here on out? I think so. You've got, you got a life eternal you got eternal life by believing. That's it. you got a free gift from God. End of story. I think that's enough to be grateful for all of eternity. All aspects of sanctification are by grace, remember. So if God wills it, it shall be done. Here are a couple of the supporting verses we considered i'm going quickly again because these are review points acts 20 32 i'll give you the amplified though 
And now I commend you to God, placing you in his protective, loving care. And I commend you to the word of his grace, the counsel and promises of his unmerited favor. His grace is able to build you up and to give you the rightful inheritance among all those who are sanctified, that is, among those who are set apart for God's purpose, all believers. And then I'll give you one, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 in the Amplified as well. And such were some of you before you believed, but you were washed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You were sanctified, set apart for God, and made holy. You were justified, declared free of guilt. Remember, this is positional sanctification. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit of our God the source of the believer's new life and changed behavior. Again, that completed our survey of positional sanctification, otherwise known as the imputed phase. And imputed is obviously a judicial term. God wills to sanctify the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ, those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, are delivered to imputed righteousness through justification. A believer's position in Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living. Now that was the first of the three phases of sanctification uh, we've been looking at in Scripture up here on the board, just to put it in perspective again. Now the last piece of the positional point is this. When it comes to positional sanctification, there is no variation, in other words. There's no gradient. It's the gavel came down. It's absolute. You have imputed perfect righteousness. One person doesn't have more or less perfect righteousness. It's perfect. It's infinitely perfect. It was Christ. You have it. Done deal. That's imputed perfect righteousness. So when it comes to positional sanctification, there's no gradation between believers. Everyone's equally sanctified, positionally speaking. All saints are equally sanctified in Christ. Since believers are sanctified judicially on the merits of Christ himself, he has become righteousness unto them. Positional sanctification is perfected in all those who are saved. Now here's when we must proceed with caution and not make the mistake of hyper-categorizing positional things while we press on to experiential ones. In other words, don't take the concept of from faith, positional sanctification, and put it on a shelf and say, okay, let's, let's work with to faith now. Let's work with experiential things now. And somehow they have a false distance between them. There's a disconnect between them. The Spirit's been very adamant on saying you have to think about these things from God's perspective even which is all at once he promises it all to happen therefore there's a unity to it if he saves you he's going to sanctify you that's a promise of God so don't hyper categorize out positional sanctification as we get to experiential sanctification do not do that remember the statement God saves and sanctifies and consider it unity on that note, I drew up a graphical way of considering the big picture of the sanctification process. And remember, when we're talking about sanctification, we are addressing the manner in which God delivers us up to righteousness as opposed to salvation from sin. 
we are sanctified to righteousness. Sort of two, two sides of the coin, the overall thing being deliverance. <clears throat> so this is just one graphical way, and don't make it a, you know, don't be putting that as a tattoo on your back or something. Nobody was going to do that. But this is one way to look at the phases of sanctification. Really, the emphasis is on a couple of things. From God's perspective, Alpha and the Omega, He sees everything. There's no construct. This little blue line that starts off dash, that just represents before you were even born, before you were even saved, anything before you, in other words. God sees all of human history all at once. He ordained the whole thing. Okay? You, however, have a windowed perspective. God sees the whole parade. You just see through one window. That's your perspective. When you're saved, you're placed into the body of Christ. Christ is the head. That's him with the crown. Christ is the head. We're part of the body. Our perspective is when we're talking about positional things, positional means your proximity to Jesus never changes. You're indwelled by him. You have his righteousness imputed to your account even. So your proximity, if you would, to Jesus Christ and uh, things righteous at a positional level is what we call positional sanctification. Your perspective is that you are in Christ. That's it. So in one sense, we can say our relative position to Christ never changes. However, we move forward, don't we? We experience experiential sanctification. We experience life, and then ultimately we make it to heaven where heaven really is a unified position and experience. In other words, they become one and the same. Your experience then is perfected, in other words, while here on earth it's not. You are being sanctified, but you are not completely holy. You are not completely sanctified in life. You know why we know that? Because before, pretty much, I'm going to go out on a limb, Every one of us, before we lay our precious little heads down on our pillows tonight, is going to sin. At least once. Even if it's a one little mental attitude sin. Which means that, guess what? In life, you're not holy. Judicially, holy. Experientially, not. Sometimes, but not always. So the way we might summarize that in words or in text is this way. Your relative position to Christ never changes. Your relative experience with life always changes. In heaven, your position and experience will be unified. Just one way to think about it. Another angle into the rose bush, my friends. A practical example of this in Scripture is the Corinthian church. Again, we're just trying to nail down even the context of sanctification. If we're going to use that language, and there's a common word, in both positional experiential sanctification, then context means an awful lot when we're talking about the phrase of the term sanctification. So the Corinthians are a good example where Scripture states that they are, quote, in Christ, but are experiencing life in both holy and unholy ways. So in one sense, they're sanctified, but in another sense, they're only kind of sanctified or being sanctified. And that's a perfect illustration of the graphic I just gave you and a perfect scriptural illustration, as we're going to see, of what the Spirit's been talking about relative to context. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. So first, let's identify the scripture that states that they are sanctified positionally. Remember, that's the gavel has come down. There is no inequality 
in terms of the amount of righteousness or the effectiveness of it or the perfect or the uh, the perfectness of it. Is that a right word? Yeah, right. the perfection of it. Some people don't even care at this point. People are like, it doesn't matter. Just make a word up like Todd does. First <laughs> Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Saints by what? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's a reference to, guess what? The Corinthians that are sanctified. Now, if you don't have the idea of sanctified right in your soul, you're going to be confused. Because in one sense, it's saying they're sanctified, set apart, being in Christ Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians 6.11, which is true. But again, context matters. You have to understand the difference between positional sanctification and experiential sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You see judicial phrases there, don't you? Because that's what positional sanctification is all about. It's a judicially wrought statement. In other words, the, the gavel came down, the judgment of God has been satisfied, etc., etc. Positional sanctification is a judicial issue. You have imputed righteousness to your account. You're set free, and uh, you're perfectly righteous as far as God is concerned. Now, that's the Corinthian believers in view. Now, that shows that the Corinthians were completely sanctified positionally, at least those being addressed uh, in context there. However, to this same group of people, Paul wrote about their incomplete progressive or experiential sanctification. Go to 1 Corinthians 5.1. 1 Corinthians 5.1. So to the same group, he says something totally different. He says, in one sense, you've been sanctified, washed by the blood of Christ. Being in Christ, you are completely righteous. Well, that's their position. That's the judicial aspect of salvation. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, the Corinthians, though sanctified positionally, were not completely sanctified experientially. One more passage to amplify their unholiness. Go to 1 Corinthians 6 1. 1 Corinthians 6 1. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not uh, competent to constitute the smallest law of courts? Do you not know that we will uh, judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? In other words, the Corinthians were suing the pants off each other, which 
technically, if you're a Christian, we, we're not supposed to take each other to court. I don't know if you knew that or not. <clears throat> I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So we know that in one sense, Paul says they're sanctified in Christ, but in another sense, they're unholy in many ways in their experience. So again, Scripture states that the Corinthians were in Christ positionally, but were experiencing life in both holy and unholy ways. Again, a nice way to think about these things is this graphic. They didn't lose their position, the believers, but just as they were going through life, they were being experientially sanctified, which means that in some aspects of their life, they were unholy. In some aspects, they were holy. Sound familiar? That's us. So again, in word, your relative position to Christ never changes. Your relative experience with life always changes. Thanks be to God, in heaven, our position and experience will be unified. So the Corinthians are a good example of how God sanctifies positionally, which carries with it a certain unity being in Christ, and how God sanctifies experientially as well. They're a good example of that, which carries with it a real-time ability to, quote, do business with His grace. So, like the rest of us, context is key in understanding sanctification as a principle. That's the point that the Spirit is drilling home ad nauseum at this juncture by the looks on your faces. That He's making that... You got to remember, too, we don't know. 4,000 hits a month on the website. Lots and lots of downloads. I never know exactly who's being taught. And you have to think about it that way. We can't just always progress into the stratosphere with our, quote, doctrines even. So just remember that up here on the board. Like the rest of us, context is key in understanding sanctification as a principle. Positional and experiential sanctification, while the Corinthians were holy, 2 Corinthians 9, 1-2, and unholy in life. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2, 6, 1 to 8. We just saw these things. In terms of experiential sanctification, they are said to have been sanctified positionally. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 6, and 11. So in other words, there's two aspects to this thing. As our graphic illustrated, our relative experience to life is always changing. Hence the two sides of the Corinthian sanctification in life. Now, let's grab one verse where we haven't looked at at the point on the board. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 9.1. I've got to pick a spot. We're out of time. 2 Corinthians 9.1. Because we've really only seen how they've been made sanctified or positionally sanctified. We've seen how they are unholy experientially. How about when they're holy experientially? How about the other side of that coin? Just so you know that there's Scripture that says both sides. I mean, the Corinthians were seemingly knuckleheads, but they weren't all knuckleheads. They did bear good fruit. 2 Corinthians 9.1 For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, 
For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Well, that's a very good thing, isn't it? That's complimentary. That's Paul saying, I see something good in you, regardless of all the other things. So that means experience can be filled with both. Even though we're being sanctified, it's a progressive thing. So you see, such is the importance of the context in statements that use the word sanctified or holy. That's why we can't make... It's very dangerous, especially if you're a lay person. It's very dangerous to make doctrines out of words. Very dangerous, because if you slip up and you make a doctrine and you make a definition too narrow... You're going to take that definition, plop it into another statement in the Word of God, and misinterpret Scripture. And that's very dangerous. That's how cults come around and say, there are some idiots out there that say, if you're positionally sanctified, you're totally sanctified, you'll never sin again. That's a misappropriation. That's a very narrow definition of sanctification misapplied to experiential sanctification passages. And that's how everything goes crazy. So we can't do that. So you see, such is the importance of context and statements that use the word sanctified or holy. If we speak about the judicial aspects of salvation, we are absolutely made holy. So in this sense, we can call all true believers holy brethren. Can't we? Yeah, we're all holy brethren. We're all in Christ, are we not? We're all equally made righteous in Christ. We just saw that in Scripture. That's a true statement. However, when you're sinning tonight, you're not holy. You're not sanctified. Well, you're being sanctified, but you know what I'm saying. In that moment, you are not holy. That's not you being set apart for God's purposes. That's you being set apart for the Big Bang Theory purposes or whatever show you might be watching, a movie, or whatever you're doing. I don't want to know. <laughs> really. <laughs> Amen? All right, we're out of time. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege, the honor of learning your word this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.